University of Texas Press presents Sonata by the historian Charles Bowden. In this sixth and final installment of his Unnatural History of America series, Charles Bowden contrasts the intractable violence of man with the enduring beauty of the natural world and its potential for regeneration. Sonata and the Unnatural History of America series, available now at utexaspress.com and wherever good books are sold. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Patricio Guzman's Battle for Chile is a three-part verite documentary about the events leading up to the military coup that overthrew Salvador Allende. The scenes of brutality and upheaval it depicts exist nowhere else on film and were, for many years, suppressed in Chile. In the film's most infamous scene, Leonardo Henriksen, the cameraman who is filming a regiment firing upon civilians, is fatally shot. We see his killer, and we see his camera tumble down with him. Henriksen's death is but one instance of journalists, photographers, and filmmakers dying while attempting to show the truth. As Janine Di Giovanni explains in the August issue, even reporters who survive harrowing situations where either they or others are threatened, may carry a form of trauma called moral injury. Di Giovanni, a veteran war reporter herself, writes about this burgeoning area of psychological research and asks whether those of us who survived COVID-19 may suffer from moral injury too. So... At the center of your piece is Anthony Feinstein, a psychiatrist at the University of Toronto, who was the first right. to extensively research post-traumatic stress disorder among conflict reporters. Could you remind us of his story and suggest why he was literally the first to do this type of research? Dr. Anthony Feinstein had grown up in South Africa. And during his life, he had witnessed extreme violence. So he had experienced and knew very well what trauma was. But he had largely seen it within, it, it, it had only really been used, mainly talking about military and, and never really focused on the reporters who were witnessing the kind of violent acts that were being committed. So in the 1990s, in which there was a series of terrible, terrible wars that basically ravaged the Balkans, Africa, and there was a very different kind of reporting in those days. Uh, first of all, it was, of course, pre-COVID and pre-2008 financial collapse of newspapers. So foreign desks had a lot of money to send journalists in the field. And when they went to the field, they would stay, I, I, I am one of that tribe of uh, war reporters, we'd stay for months and months at a time. So Anthony began to see a lot of evidence that there were reporters who were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, but it had never been identified. And more importantly, when he sent his researchers to the medical libraries, there had been no precedent cases which he found extremely interesting, but also important that in his own work, meaning that it kind of goaded him to go forward and to do this research. And you mentioned the financial collapse of 2008 and sort of what journalism was like 
back in the 90s before, you know, there was this great shrinkage, let's say, of foreign desks and just journalism in general. Can you talk about how reporting works now that that infrastructure has kind of gone, especially in places like war zones where the support that these institutions seem to offer was kind of tenuous back then. So what is it like now? Well, back in the 90s, when I started working as a foreign correspondent, first of all, there's pros and cons, because on one hand, we had much more money and much more financial resources. But someone like me, who was an extremely young reporter, I had worked for the AP, but I'd come from an academic background. So I wasn't a... um, you know, I wasn't a seasoned veteran correspondent. I'd be sent to a place that was extremely dangerous, whether the siege of Sarajevo or the, the fall of Grozny, Chechnya, um, without any training. So these days, you can't go anywhere without being certified, um, having an insurance, you know, having war insurance, having hostage negotiation insurance. I mean, of course you can. You can be a freelancer that turns up in, in Aleppo or Homs or Idlib or right now Libya, but it's increasingly even freelancers are trying to find ways to get insurance, to have the right protective gear, meaning a flak jacket, helmet, uh, always a medical kit. And, you know, when I went, I mean, literally I was dropped off on Sniper's Alley with a a huge satellite phone that I didn't know how to put together, uh, a flashlight, couple tins of tuna fish and um, some winter gear. And and that was it. That was the siege of Sarajevo, which was one of the most, one of the most dangerous conflicts for reporters to cover. So very, very different. I think the main thing is the, the amount of time we spend, you know, we, to work on a story would be three to six months, but that's a magazine story. You know, if you were a newspaper reporter, for instance, during the fall of Saddam Hussein, I worked for the times of London and I had been, in Baghdad, I think for about five or six months before he fell, before Saddam actually fell. And I had to churn out, you know, like two or three news stories a day. So a tremendous amount of pressure on on the reporter, which is its own kind of trauma, I suppose. Fair. So let's talk about moral injury. As you note in your piece, PTSD has and discussions of trauma have really grown over the past, let's say, well, basically, since uh, the war in Iraq became a forever war, right? So the, the the familiarity with PTSD, with trauma, is pretty widespread. But how is it different from moral injury, which you discuss in the piece? Yeah, moral injury is basically an affront to all of your moral beliefs. So if your core beliefs are that people don't torture or hurt, another human being, and you are one of the officers that was standing around while George Floyd, while another officer had his, his foot on his neck for nine minutes, I would, I would think that if those other men witnessing that had any kind of moral belief that it is wrong to hurt another human being, they, they will be suffering from that now. Mm. I don't know enough about them to judge that. Um, another instance could be let's say, during the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq and interrogators that were forced to watch their colleagues torture individuals that they were questioning. And their own belief system was basically like, you do not do that to prisoners of war. 
that would deeply scar them emotionally. So it's more an affront to your moral code. And, and it, it could also be, I mean, Antony describes it as a scar on the soul, which I think is a really poetic, but yet very accurate way of describing it. Because for instance, if you're brought up in a way that you truly believe in goodness, right? That, that every individual and, and that humanity essentially at its core is good. It's going to hurt you deeply to be sitting in a place where genocide is being committed or where you, you see women being systematically raped, where you see sexual violence during wartime, where you see prisoners taken and treated brutally. Any of that is going to go against everything that you were brought up to believe, that, that human beings protect each other and, and will not hurt each other. And so this, this has, I mean, what, moral injury has always been used in terms of the military, in terms of soldiers. You think back um, of the Vietnam War, what some you know, very innocent young soldiers, American soldiers who were 18 or 19, were sent to a war that they just did not believe in and had to witness some of them atrocities or in, in some cases commit them. Now, this, this, this would cause what is known as moral injury. But it's now what the difference is and what I wrote about is that it's not just limited to the military now. And Anthony Feinstein, um, who did, by the way, his, his work with post-traumatic stress disorder and the effect on war reporters, which I was part of his study, was published um, in 2002 to great acclaim. And he became known as the, the go-to guy for trauma related to reporter, war reporters, specifically reporters of conflict. And as he said to me, you know, every time I met one of your tribe, my, uh, my colleagues and I, and he interviewed, I think, 140 of us from all over the world, you all seemed to feel like you were protected by some bubble, you know, that it won't happen to me. And he felt that that was a kind of unique thing um, that, 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 that all of us had. But he said, but in fact, every single one of the career war reporters, and I mean, people that, as he described it, you know, a, a soldier on a tour of Iraq or Afghanistan would go for two, maybe three tours, right? But a career war reporter would be working 15, 20, 25, 30 years in the field of sustained witnessing violence over and over again. And, you know, I lived well, two genocides, the destruction of several capital cities, many countries where, you know, where I worked very closely with victims of intense torture, mm -hmm. Syria, Africa, um, where communities were entirely ripped apart. So what we were seeing and what we were witnessing was not normal, but we believed it was normal because it was our, it was from the lens that we saw our world. So Antony has now launched a moral injury study mm. um, on basically the same kind of outline of which he started his first study more than 20 years ago. And speaking of Dr. Feinstein, you at one point you quote him writing about moral injury among reporters covering the refugee crisis. Quote, good journalists will, of course, feel moved by the migration crisis, but they cannot fix it and should not attempt to do so. Guilt, which is often misplaced, can be a faulty motivator of behavior. So too can moral injury. So are we to take this should not as a mental health recommendation 
or an ethical mm. one or both? Uh, does Feinstein mean that reporters should stick to trying to fix the migration crisis through reporting or that they shouldn't be motivated by the desire to fix it at all? I don't think he's I don't think he's giving that kind of a judgment. I think what he's saying, he started noticing more cases of moral injury around the time of the refugee crisis, 2015, especially because he was getting a lot of patients or people who were talking to him saying, look, I was standing on the shore in uh, Greece, seeing boatloads of people coming and suddenly the boat would capsize. Now, what, mm-hmm. what, what, what was I meant to do? Should I put down my camera or should I take the photograph or should I call 911? And he was seeing people that were in a lot of distress you know, there are many different kinds of journalists. During the siege of Sarajevo, for instance, there were journalists who, where the lines were very much blurred between whether they were social workers or journalists. And I think I was one of them. You know, people would actively pick up wounded civilians, put them in their car, and take them to the triage or, or the hospital if it was, if it was, you know, if there was electricity, if it was running. People would actively give first aid. People would, you know, if there was a shelling. And there were many civilians who were injured. People would, you know, try to help them. We would give money to people. We would try to give them food, get them, there weren't visas, but try to find ways for them to leave the city, mm. um, which was completely encircled. So there's people who do that. And then there, there will always be journalists that just take pictures and take notes and don't really feel that it is their job to do anything else. And I think what Anthony is saying is that that's, fine as well. I mean, um, some people really feel that they, uh, it is not their responsibility. They're not there to save the world. They're there to, to record something and document something and bring it back to readers or viewers or listeners. Right. Related to that, if moral injury is one thing that can happen when a person chooses to bear witness rather than giving help or while they are bearing witness and giving help, then one might argue that the role of a conflict reporter is to inflict a sort of minor version of moral injury on the audience back home in order to motivate aid or intervention or a shift in foreign policy. Is the difference between moral injury and this apparently more desirable effect mainly a question of magnitude? Gosh, I certainly hope so. I mean, every time I write something that I feel outraged about, I'm hoping that it will have some effect on policy. And really, if I'm honest with myself, the years I spent working and writing about Syria had very little effect compared to Sarajevo, where I really do feel my colleagues and I made a difference. And that But that was, again, it was a different time Mm -hmm. when people actually bought newspapers, read them, when politicians were reading newspapers, when they would go um, and, and, you know, things would happen because of the stories we were writing, the the deeply human personal stories, Mm -hmm. right, which is the thing that would affect people more. When you think about it, the refugee crisis 2015, there was one image that really stuck in people's mind, and that was of the young boy drowning. And somehow that caused, you know, everyone to sit up and say, this is wrong. We need to protect these people. But ultimately, who did protect them? Angela Merkel, one country, Germany. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's shameful that I, I'm sitting in France right now. France didn't do very much. Britain didn't do very much. The Scandinavian countries always do what they can. But I think everyone could have pulled their weight a lot more to protect those people from, from dying 
you know, they weren't they weren't leaving because they they wanted to. They were leaving because they had to because exactly. they were either on the run from a political situation or an economic depravity that they really needed to overcome. So, you really really need to. And I know we're not talking about the refugee crisis, but you to leave your home behind. And I've interviewed thousands of people in my lifetime who are fleeing war or or worse, political repression or or their their being hunted down by dictatorships. Um, for someone to leave the country they were born in and leave behind their photographs, their memories, their families, their roots, it takes a huge amount. So your question about whether we inflicted moral injury on the public enough, well, not in my view, not enough. <laughs> because that would have, I think, had, had a greater effect in having policy which would have protected these people. Do you also feel like how foreign reporting has changed where, you know, starting with the second Iraq war that reporters were embedded with soldiers rather than sort of being left out to potentially get more to be to be abducted or killed or what, you know, terrible things happened to them, but rather that they were with You know, they were in green zones, they were embedded with troops, they had a very specific sort of framework for understanding the war. Do you feel like that has also changed how the public processes these things? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, I embed it in the sense that I would I would be alongside, you know, renegade militias of in African countries, but like I never I, I think I did one embed and I uh, traditional embed and I loathed every second of it because frankly I wasn't interested in American soldiers. Mm-hmm. I was interested in what was happening in the country and what was happening to the people and how it was, you know, the conflict was breaking down society or how it was affecting the education or the 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 situation, the status of women or um I I really, you know, as much as I felt for these American soldiers, it, that was not where my interest ever lay. So I, I want to say, and I, I know at the risk of being sexist, you know, the kind of report, usually male reporters who like like writing about weapons or like writing about um, military, strategic military maneuvers, and they could sit around with soldiers and talk about theories. But that wasn't my thing. Mm-hmm. You know, my generation would go to Iraq and basically drive around and, and stop in villages and talk to people and stay, you know, I, I worked with the Yazidis before it became, you know, a huge story uh, during um, Daesh, during the Islamic State, mm-hmm. 2014. You know, I'd go and stay in Yazidi villages. And that, to me, it was much more anthropological. So I think your question is really about how has journalism, foreign correspondence changed? And it's changed radically. Mm-hmm. And now, like, for instance, you get a war like Syria or Libya, which is blowing up, right? right? And who do you embed with? The Russian Russian Air Force, um, the Turks, the Syrian militiamen? Libya is more like an old-style conflict. And, and, of course, there's going to always be great photojournalists and documentarians and writers that are going to go and try to record what's happening. But it's seriously dangerous. Mm-hmm. So, on one hand, I do understand the plight of um, a young reporter who, for whatever reason, wants to be a war reporter or a foreign correspondent and saying, well, how the hell do I do this? You know, do I just rock up in 
the Gaza Strip by myself. You, you, you need support. And when young reporters come to me and say, like, I want to go to Syria, or um, I would always say, no, you don't. You really don't. This is not a conflict that you should cut your teeth on. Go work for a local paper for a while. Maybe ease yourself in by working in a sort of post-conflict country to understand what happens to countries during wartime. Then maybe when you have some experience, but there were people turning up in Aleppo and Homs that were, they were young and they were they were very brave and very committed, but it was it was just too dangerous to be there. Right. So yeah. Um, and of course, now there is also something else, which is um, it, we were always targeted journalists, but we weren't taken hostage. Mm. It, I mean, of course, in Beirut, which was a war long before my time in the 80s, um, the journalists were taken hostage. But, you know, basically the 90s, the worst that could happen to you is you'd be killed or you'd, you'd be you'd be terribly injured, losing limbs or losing your eyesight or something, horrible things. But by and large, you wouldn't be. There were a few cases of people I knew who were kidnapped. I was taken by a, a paramilitary into a forest, but I was let go, but less so. And then came the Islamic State and the rise of other paramilitary, non violent, non-state actors. And it became a whole other ballgame. It was about hostage taking, and it was about who, for instance, the American and the Brits never pay and we know this because of James Foley and, and Steve Sutloff that, right. you know, and others whose parents clearly would have paid to have them released. Mm-hmm. And um, the government doesn't allow it. But the French, the Italians, the Spanish, basically everyone else pays to get their citizens released. So this was another big change, a systematic change in um, being a foreign correspondent. So and I actually wanted to ask a a question related to that. So Feinstein's work led some major news organizations to create conflict reporting protocols like CNN, the Associated Press, the New York Times, the BBC. Would you say that these protocols have led to a substantially better situation for conflict reporters with regard to safety and moral injury? Or is there, in your experience, still a strong imperative for reporters to keep their wounds hidden from their employers, like the first patient who went to Feinstein. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think people still do hide it. I think you do, you know, the BBC did this great job of right after the Bosnian War of kind of making the reporters come back and debrief and and sometimes seek counseling. But, you know, I have some really close friends. Well, I have many friends who were killed. I have several friends who killed themselves, many alcoholics in our tribe. But I think the BBC started making people kind of get post-traumatic stress um, disorder counseling, not making them, but making it available. I happened to work for a news organization at the time, which didn't, I, as far as I could see, really didn't care that much. And I, I don't want to name them. Everyone, anyone could go Google it and find out who I worked for. But um, they basically, I, as I see it, sent people into gravely dangerous situations um, knowing that they could either be killed or hurt. And and they continued to do it, even after Antony released it, even after people were killed, even after people had nervous breakdowns or suffered severe depressions. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some foreign editors that just wanted the story. You know, the story was more important, I felt, at times, than the actual individual reporter. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a there's a you know there's always a gender divide in uh, you know who is in management and who is out on the field. So it's it's you know. Yeah. Interesting. And usually the women were doing the. Well, I don't want to say that, but you know, it, different. Um, and one other thing that I think Anthony also covered this in his study was that I, when he did the first PTSD study, there weren't many women around working then. And now um, there's a huge, I mean, a huge number of women, particularly in television. And mm-hmm. you know, people I think people romanticize the profession and think it's glamorous and romantic, which it's not. But for women, when I look around at my colleagues and think. You know, they always send the woman if they don't have children, you know, because the men would always say, oh, you know, it's Christmas, it's Easter, it's my kid's birthday. And when I would look around at Christmas time in a horrible place, it'd always be the women who didn't have children who were sent mm. to kind of do these assignments. And I, the UN does the same thing and it's really interesting. And someday I need to do a study on it. But it's like, I look around at my friends who work for the UN or other organizations like that, or as journalists, and it's like they almost were halted from from having children and having family life because their career was so important. Mm-hmm. And you know, your thirties as a foreign correspondent is the time when you flourish. And um, you know, if, even if you start as a young twenty two year old, you're not going to be any good till you're in your mid thirties. And of course, that was the time when you know women traditionally were having babies and making families Mm -hmm. but if you really wanted to fight your way into this club you couldn't right um so that's that was you know something interesting that no one ever really talks about sure and you predict that the pandemic will leave many people suffering from moral injury especially frontline healthcare workers who have to make impossible choices about who gets their limited medical resources. And clearly the pandemic and the impossible choices are far from over. But do you see evidence of this now that a few months have passed? What are some of the signs that someone or their loved ones might be suffering from moral injury? I, you know, I don't, I think we're going to see it in, in, as time goes on. I think it's, we're too close to it. Mm -hmm. And I also think that we're about to go into a second wave of it. In fact, I'm sorry. I don't think we're going into a second wave. I think we never left the first mm-hmm. wave, you know, and I think that it will, it's going to be something that we'll, we'll only be able to see from a perspective. Once um, we have a vaccine, which um, it seems that the Oxford group is getting closer, which is great. And once we get it under control, I think then we'll be able to look at it with as scientists and sociologists and anthropologists and basically see the deeper effect it had on society. Now I think you know, when you lose more than half a million people around the world who perished from an unknown virus that knew no frontier. I mean, we were terrorized by by terrorism, 9-11, the rise of ISIS. That, at one point, had people incredibly anxious. But this was something far worse, because this was something that it it wasn't happening in a far-off country. It was happening, you know, it was coming into your home, and it was killing people you knew in your apartment building, in your network of, um, you know, everyone, everyone has someone who's had COVID or suffered from it and, and some people who have died. So, I mean, it um, clearly we're going to be seeing things such as healthcare workers who 
had to make the grueling choice of who to give an intubator to, which, um, or who to treat, who not to treat. Mm. The, the grave social injustice in America about um, the healthcare system, when you think about it, the, the man who died and his last words to the nurse was, who's going to pay for this? The fact that in America, if you if you don't have health care, you die, basically. So I think I think those kind of issues are going to definitely come back to haunt haunt us. But I think it will take time, you know, and perspective on seeing the pandemic from a from a bigger lens. Right. That distance seems crucial. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Also, distancing the way our society will never return to what we were before. Yes. Never. Yeah. Even if we even if we begin again to go to raves or parties or dinner parties, this generation and um, the children that were growing up in this time, even if they were protected by their parents, are going to have some some inclination of the kind of catastrophic effect it had on society. In the same way that the Great Depression marked an entire generation, right. who then became the, the greatest generation. Uh, or how the Spanish flu, you know, how that later, or World War One, which wiped out an entire generation of young men, mm-hmm. leaving, you know, flocks of women who never married because, you know, so many men never came home. So I think we're going to see, I mean, this is a major societal shift. And there's no way that people, not everyone, but I think many people are going to walk away with some kind of moral scar on their soul. Yeah, I mean, thinking of 9-11, there was so much emphasis on mourning and that, you know, the everyone in the nation must mourn together collectively. And it was very, there was obviously a political benefit to that, but there was also, there was also an emotional comfort there. And now we're in a situation where it is politically advantageous not to publicly grieve, not to say, hey, everybody, let's mourn the lives of all these people who have been lost. So do you feel like that will make that sense of moral injury worse or complicate it? Or- yes, because we're not expressing it. I mean, I have a friend whose father died in Italy during the lockdown in France. Mm-hmm. So there was, even if she wanted to, she couldn't cross the border. The frontier was closed. Mm-hmm. You know, all of Europe closed up very quickly and she couldn't get there. Uh, there weren't trains going. Planes, the airports were closed down. And so she died, he died without her seeing him. But then even worse, there was no funeral. So, you know, because of COVID, the people have not had burials. And as we know, you know, burials are hugely important rituals in, in our, in our society, in, in, you know, in, well, not just in American society, in, in the global, like every culture has their own interpretation of how we honor the dead yeah. and, and their memory in blessed memory. So imagine thinking about that, you know, all of the people that died in this time, there was a colleague of mine, Chris Dickey, passed away last week in Paris. He was a famous foreign correspondent, loved by many, mentored many young reporters. And in normal times, we'd be having a huge memorial service for someone like that, honoring him, people telling stories, people getting drunk, people, you know, remembering 
what happened in Baghdad in 1992 and what happened in Amman and what happened in Palestine. But that's not happening. In fact, people had a Zoom memorial mm. for him. So, you know, we're going to have to adapt to a whole different way of our customs and our mores and our taboos and our um, what, you know, for instance, even our our manners are going to have to change. You know, is it impolite for someone to sit next to you on a train and not wear a mask? You know, do you have the right to say to them, excuse me, put your mask on? I did that to someone and he said to me, I've already had it. <laughs> so, you know, which isn't very comforting. No. <laughs> um, but we're going to have to, you know, again, like as a society, we're going to have to cope with moral injury, but we're also going to have to cope with a whole new system of... Um, of our rituals and our traditions, which are which are changing and will change even more as it continues. Mm. And let's try to end, perhaps a little bit, hopefully. So let's let's talk about the possibility of treatment. And you write that Feinstein is looking into cognitive behavioral therapy as one approach. So how would that work? And have there have been any studies? yet and or are there other approaches that you've found promising i don't you know i don't know if there's any studies that have been done on military um who have experienced moral injury and what jonathan shea wrote the kind of the major book on it called achilles in vietnam mm -hmm. he is a doctor a psychiatrist you know exploring various neurology and pathways of the brain um, I think it's too early to say wh whether cognitive therapy will help or not. I know certainly with PTSD, what was really effective and was developed um, or used more and more is EMDR, yeah. which is a kind of trauma treatment involving going deep into memories. I mean, I still, I'm very traditional and I was at a dinner the other night with a cognitive therapist, psychiatrist. I mean, she was a medical doctor but who only worked with cognitive therapy. She was a psychiatrist and um, she was completely against the concept of psychoanalysis. And, you know, in her view, Freud, Jung, Winnicott were just uh, worthless and, and complete um, frauds. The only thing that works for her is cognitive therapy, which is actually changing the behavioral patterns in your brain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while I think behavioral Therapy might work if you have OCD or something or HDD, but not, I think something like moral injury wouldn't, would probably benefit most. And I am not a psychiatrist, right? I'll be clear on that. But I am someone that's benefited from, from very, very good psychotherapy, but with a, with a master, not with a fraud. And one mm -hmm. has to be very careful that you get, you don't have, um, you know, someone who doesn't know what they're doing, but certainly, you know, what, what, I've witnessed in my life and what I've seen and, you know, the fact that I can still, um, you know, uh, flourish as a human being, I really owe to the fact that when I would come back, I would talk to someone about it. I didn't bottle it up. Mm. It was someone that I could always express that to. So I think moral injury is, is a similar thing. I, I would imagine that, that it will be in the future when psychiatrists begin to recognize it more and more and work with their patients, they'll be, they'll be using a combination of talk therapy and cognitive therapy. And as well, I mean, I just got a message from someone who read my story who said she is a, um, she's an academic, 
but in her spare time, she uses yoga and meditation to treat victims of trauma, mm. which I thought was amazing, actually, because um, there's another brilliant psychiatrist, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who believes that the, the effects of trauma are so devastating for sufferers that one of the things that he has devised is that he wrote in a book called The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. And it's about basically the mind-body connection of emotional trauma. And in his view, it's, it's, if it's unprocessed, it's stored, basically leaving a kind of physical imprint and, and you know, going as far as jarring your memory storage or processes in the brain. And that untreated trauma can even lead to even more... Um, dangerous symptoms. I mean, some people think that cancer comes from trauma, but that, you know, we do know it definitely leaves a physical imprint. And he has this wonderful kind of storytelling and he has videos on YouTube. He's an amazing guy. Um, that yoga is a very promising method of trauma for both moral injury and, and PTSD, because if you're holding a pose you know it's not going to last forever. So it might be painful, it might be boring, but it's going to pass. Mm -hmm. And I think in the future, the best therapists that will work on moral injury and take it seriously, because it, it is a very serious topic, will we'll use some of this as well. And I'm just, um, Anthony Feinstein is, is just one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. And I feel like my profession owes him so much because before that, no one really took it seriously. And for him, 20 years after he became the expert on PTSD to basically say, okay, now we're going to look at how their souls are scarred, mm. not just their bodies and not just their psyche, but their souls. And I, I think that's pretty remarkable. Absolutely. And as you say, we're all kind of going through something like that right now or will go through something like that. So we should pay attention to these issues and be aware that it is something that can happen and is, as you say, very serious. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Not just as individuals, but as, um, as a collective, right. you know, I mean, I think that's the real, like, look, the other thing we didn't even mention and we, we won't go there, but how, how are we going to live with Trump if he gets reelected? Right. Will will an entire society have a moral dilemma? You know, will our ethics be challenged? A man that basically everything America was founded on was about the principles of democracy, of human rights, of rule of law, of justice. And he's trampled on all of them. Mm -hmm. So if we live with that and we allow him to continue, aren't we going to suffer from moral injury? Abs I absolutely think so. So um, that's another interesting point to ponder. Yes. Well, thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save 